Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. As we begin, I will read 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul here is writing to Timothy, and he says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, let's look to God in prayer and ask once again for his help as we come to the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take your word and open it up to us. Help us by the power of your spirit to understand it. Help us to receive it with faith and with meekness and help us to be quick to obey it and produce fruit from it, not being hearers of the word only, but doers. And we acknowledge that for us to accomplish this, we are utterly dependent on you and the power of your Holy Spirit. So please grant him to us, for we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> My announced topic, and this was Wednesday evening, and it was also mentioned this morning in our service, is the subject of revival. I preached a few weeks ago a message on this topic. I said I wanted to come back to it. My text last time was Habakkuk 3, verse 2. It was just my starting text, but I mentioned that these would be topical messages, and so is today's. And my text back then was Habakkuk 3, verse 2, which says, Revive us, O Lord, in the midst of the years. It's a direct prayer for the pouring out of the Spirit of God in the reviving of His church, of His people, but also that he would enliven by saving unbelievers and bringing them into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. My text this morning is a little bit different. It's Paul says that we should pray for kings and all who are in authority. In other words, civil rulers. That's what this passage is about. Is there a connection there? Um, there's a sense in which I could say this sermon is an interlude of sorts. An interlude could be something like a, um, a short play or skit that comes in between the acts of a play. It's in the same genre of entertainment, but it's not really connected to the play itself necessarily. It's sort of a distraction. So you could consider this 
a distraction from the subject of praying for revival, but it really is a distraction with a connection. If the topic of prayer for governing authorities is not directly related to prayer for the outpouring of God's Spirit in revival, I believe it is definitely related to prayer for revival. So in other words, there's a definite connection, if not a direct connection. So this morning, if you will, my main topic is still to urge us to pray to God earnestly for the revival of religion in our generation, according to Habakkuk 3 and verse 2. But my related or connected topic for this one sermon interlude here is to pray for civil rulers, according to Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So my goals in this message are basically to differentiate between those two things, praying for revival and praying for rulers, but also to encourage us to pray for rulers for a very important reason, because I think there is a connection between these two things. There is a connection of prayer for human governments or governors, if you will, with prayer for revival. And the first reason I want to say there is a connection is because of the importance of civil government when it comes to their influence for evil or for good. I believe God has made that connection. It's interesting, I um, uh, had a, com a conversation with some of the men in the church about this very subject on Friday, and we're touching directly on this, uh, but this is something that I had in my notes um, for a month, uh, because it's actually uh, what led to, the, to my messages on revival. We had an election day, I can't remember how many weeks ago now, maybe it was a full month ago now, and the fact that I had to go out and vote got me thinking about this subject. I started out thinking that, boy, we're, we're, we're now, not only do I have to go vote today, but this is kind of signaling to me we're in a, a, one of the big election years. Within one year, we'll have one of the, the presidential elections and the elections for congressmen and senators and all of that. So it got me thinking about that, and it got me thinking about the times that we're in, and so on, and I thought, all right, I need to pray for this election, pray regarding the next election, in keeping with 1 Timothy 2, and then I st started thinking about all the reasons why I think that is important, and many times, the things that spur the church, I think I said this last time when I preached on this subject, many, things, many of the things that spur the church to pray for revival are found in the circumstances around us. When we are in bad times from a moral perspective, we think about praying for the outpouring of God's Spirit. One of the texts I think I mentioned last time was Psalm 131, verse 136, where the psalmist says, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because your law is not obeyed. Now, that's a Christian's 
sentiment and confession. Rivers of water generally do not run down the eyes of people in this world because God's law is not being obeyed. But for Christians, that does happen. I hope it happens for you. Even if it doesn't bring you to the point of actual physical tears, I hope considering the world around us has that effect on you. We are in one of those times, brethren, I think we would all say this, when lawlessness abounds. And so when rivers of water are running down from our eyes because of the sin we see around us, when lawlessness abounds and we see it and we feel it, it's one of those kinds of times in the world. I mean, there's a sense in which we can say, um, you know, since I was a, a young kid, because I grew up in the 1960s, I was born at the end of the 1950s, since I was a young kid, there's been a huge moral revolution in our country and in the Western world. Not a good one in any stretch of the imagination. And then when we think about the uh, turn of the century here that we went through, some of us anyway, most of us in this room probably, um, things only continued to get worse. And then as we got into the 20 teens, they rapidly accelerated in their downward spiral. And then in the last half, half, half dozen years or less even, the pace has only picked up. We're in one of those times in the history of the world, not just that, well, because of what I see in my lifetime, it seems much bigger to me. No, when people write the history of this country, starting in 1960, if they're writing honestly, there has been a huge, huge drop-off in righteousness, if you will, outward righteousness, societal morality, etc. That's just the truth. I think we can all easily recognize we are in that kind of a time. And my point here for the moment is simply to say that the same circumstances that compel us to pray for revival should also compel us to pray for our governing authorities, whether they are local or national, whether it's at home or abroad, even for in this day and age, what could be called international governing bodies of sorts. And I think you could turn that statement around and say it the other way. The things that compel us to pray for our governing leaders should also compel us to pray for the outpouring of God's spirit in a great way. You say, well, that's just a connection you're making in your mind with your logic. I, one of the reasons I started with 1 Timothy 2, though I'm not going to expound the passage, is because I think Paul makes that very connection here. You tell me if you don't see it. He says, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be, be made for all men. Well, of course, we will pray for all men. But then he specifies the particular men he has in view. We would say people, because we are ruled by men and women, not then. That's why he said it the way he said it. He says, for kings and all who are in authority. That's who he's talking about. 
that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Then he says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And here's how he finishes the sentence. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, Paul puts a connection between prayer for governing authorities, kings, governors, go right down the list to mayors, policemen, etc. Prayer for them and the salvation of sinners. Pray that way because God wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if I'm the one who has missed the point, you instruct me later. But I think it's right there in the text. Let's think of a very simple an obvious example. Almost every Sunday night in this church, we pray for Christians or for the work of the gospel in countries where it's difficult, places in the world where there's persecution. A lot of those countries, when we pray for them, these things are true about them. It is illegal to preach the gospel openly. It's illegal to evangelize citizens of the country, even in private. It is illegal to meet openly as a church, in some places to even have a church. It is illegal to hand out Bibles. Okay? We all know that. You think there's a connection or no between that fact and this other fact that is commonly stated in those countries. The percentage of professing Christians in that country is under 1%. Maybe it's as many as 3%, but it's usually in that ballpark. Do we think there's a connection there or not? So, my point is, at this point, is that so the importance of civil government as an influence for evil or good. Let's just look at a few passages first as an influence for evil. Proverbs 28, verse 15. Proverbs 28, verse 15. I've demonstrated in terms of real life in the 21st century, but now let's look at what the scripture says on the subject. Proverbs 28, 15. Like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. Many of those nations that we, I mentioned just a moment ago are very poor nations. I'm not going to get into the point of how much of a connection there is between the idolatrous religions of those countries and their aggressive persecution of Christians and their poverty. Just another thought I'll throw out there. But they're poor countries. And the Bible makes this general statement that when you have a wicked ruler over a poor people, they're probably going to stay that way and their lot, both economically and certainly spiritually, with a wicked ruler, 
is only going to get worse. In fact, here's the illustration of, of Solomon about the effect of that ruler on that nation and its citizens. He's like a roaring lion and a charging bear attacking them. You might say, it doesn't matter to God who's on the throne or who's in the White House. He can work against, above, around, etc. And I say a hundred amens to that. But Scripture does give us statements about the general ways God works. And similarly, the next verse, verse 16, a ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor. But he who hates covetousness will prolong his days. There are other nations in the world where they're not, um, what's my word, devoted to some idolatrous religion. But the people still languish in those countries. Maybe it's just because their rulers are ignorant. They're not like the ruler of Iran, who is committed to this Muslim, what we would call extremism. We don't even have to call it extremism. It's a, it's a very wrong, false, blinding, destructive religion. But some rulers are not tied to religion. They've, they pride themselves as being atheists. They have a religion. But let's just say they're ignorant. Well, if they're ignorant, here's what the Bible says. A ruler who lacks understanding is still, like the other, a great oppressor. Maybe he's just covetous. And there are many nations like that. Poor nations who have rulers who aren't promoting Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam. They're maybe not even saying anything positive or negative about Christianity. They're just covetous men at the top of the food chain in their country. And the Bible says it has a terrible effect on everybody underneath them. So there are just a couple of texts. I'll give you another one if you want to look it up later. Proverbs 29, 12. You could find others Staying in the book of Proverbs, let's consider this matter of the influence for good. Proverbs 20. Well, look, since we're almost at 29, chapter 29, go there first. Proverbs 29, verse 4. Well, but what if there's a just king, a righteous king? Well, it says here, the king establishes the land by justice. In other words, in that case, he was obviously a believer that it's talking about in the nation of Israel. But isn't it true that in this world, if a king would simply, even if he was not a true Christian, to pursue justice and righteousness by some kind of a biblical standard of what that is, it would have good effects on a nation. The king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. In other words, let's say if the man says his conscience convicts him, bribes are wrong, he stops it. He roots out corruption from his country. He doesn't get converted to Christianity. He doesn't start preaching the gospel. But this is, this is still a truth. Or verse 14 of the same chapter. The king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established. I'll give you th three other verses in Proverbs 
They're all in, verse, in chapter 20. Verse 2, verse 8, verse 26, verse 28 of Proverbs 20. But let's turn to one New Testament passage. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord, this is Paul writing, may have free course, it may, it may run, and be glorified just as it is with you. And, so in other words, his prayer is that the gospel will spread. And then notice the next part. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith. I mean, I mean, doesn't that sound like it could be a 1 Timothy 2, one and following prayer, that we would be delivered from wicked men? That the next time I stand before a Roman um, soldier with my back exposed and his arm cocked back, ready to whip me, and I mention um, I am a Roman citizen, that he would do what he should do and have mercy upon me? I mean, I think that's part of what Paul's saying. That's the way I read it. We can pray that for missionaries in difficult places and Christians in difficult places, that they would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, especially in government. So the scripture teaches us this point, that there is this connection between government and good overall. The history of Israel and Judah tells us that in the Old Testament. Think of the King Josiah, one of the later kings of Judah. His repentance and his reforms when the word of God was found in the temple and read to him. He tore his garments. He instituted all kinds of reforms. And he already was a good king, but he became a better king by doing that. And he instituted the Passover, and the Bible says that their Passover was celebrated like it had not been since, I can't remember what it was now, the days of Samuel maybe, something like that. Long time. And the response of God to that through his prophet was that he was staying, he was holding off his judgment on Judah because of that. Now it eventually came anyway. Because it had to, and that leads to another comment about, and another example in the Old Testament, that is Manasseh, the king Manasseh. He did repent later in life, but he was so bad for so many years before that, that God said basically that is the last straw. And the king Manasseh was so bad, he was so murderous, he shed innocent blood, and he was so idolatrous, he put up altars and idols everywhere in Judea. He was so bad, God said, when he finally sent the Jews off to Babylon, he said it was because of Manasseh. Just noticing this reality from a biblical standpoint that when we pray for good for a country, yes, we should be praying first and foremost, and especially about the pouring out of the Spirit and the success of the gospel, I'm just saying, at the very least, these two prayers, prayers for revival 
and prayers for our leaders are tangential, if not intersecting, for you math students. Or think of the revival in Nineveh in the days of the prophet Jonah. Let's just read the passage. Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Jonah 3, verses 5 through 10. Right after Obadiah, right before Micah. You all know the story about the prophet Jonah. God called him to go preach to Nineveh. He knew God was merciful. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He got on a ship going in the opposite direction. God arrested him. God brought him to Nineveh. He went and reluctantly preached. Chapter 3, verse 5. So, when he preached, the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And here's where the ruler comes in. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned away from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And my point is simply this, brethren. If you are looking upon a modern-day Nineveh situation, and you can read in a history book or something, Bible commentary, what Nineveh was like in the days of Jonah, and you look on a modern-day Nineveh, whether it's called New York City or San Francisco or Portland, Oregon, or Paris, France, or London, England, or you name the city, Baghdad, Tehran, whatever. If you look upon that, and you walk away and pray, Lord, raise up someone in that city, like the king of Nineveh, or like Nebuchadnezzar, who had a similar proclamation about the true God in his day, though we don't know that there was a revival of religion. If you pray that, and I pray, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, pour out your Holy Spirit, send missionaries to that land, and let them be received. My point is, I don't think my prayer is necessarily any better than yours. I think they're along the same lines, and for the same purpose, they're just different. Just like, for instance, if someone has cancer, and you and I both know only God can heal that person. So if I pray, God, heal that person, 
Come and work through whatever means, even without any visible means, and save that person's life. And you pray, Lord, use that medical treatment that is being implemented right now. Bless that surgeon who's going to perform surgery. Give him clarity of mind. Give him good sleep the night before. Give him great skill. Guide his hands in the effort and those who are around him even making observations for him and handing him implements. I'm not going to say my prayer is better than yours. Do you see what I'm saying? I think you all get it. So we look at the history of the Bible and the Word of God and we see that. And just for, for good measure, look, we can consider the history of this world outside of the Bible and the impact of leaders of nations. In the history of the world, and I mean the history of the world in capital letters, think of the Reformation, perhaps the biggest revival of religion outside of the Bible, perhaps, up to this point in history. You may have heard of Frederick, the elector of Sax Saxony. That was in Germany. This man, who was the prince, if you will, of the area where Martin Luther lived, he protected Luther from the Pope and from the Holy Roman Emperor. Melanchthon, the close friend and associate of Luther as a theologian and preacher, commended Frederick, the elector of Saxony, when he preached at his funeral, he commended him for promoting the gospel. Frederick was a just man, I don't mean in the Christian sense of a righteous man, necessarily a Christian, because we don't even know that he was a Christian, but he was a just man in the sense that, like Romans 13 says a ruler should do, he wanted to protect his citizens from unrighteousness. That's why he stood behind Luther. We don't even know that he ever met Luther. But another historian wrote this about Frederick the elector of Saxony, he said, Protestantism owes this man an immense debt. Now, we take that statement with a grain of salt. We, we only really owe God for anything. But you see what he's saying, under God. That's the idea. That's my point. Or think of more recent examples of history. I gave you some when I talked about Islamic nations. I, I'm just going to leave it there just for the sake of time. But, but think of the way God has blessed our nation compared to Islamic nations and other nations where there's false religion that abounds. And you can see connections between even economic hardships sometimes. And brethren, I am not saying that I'm, I'm, I'm um, you know, preaching about the, the wonders and the greatness of capitalism. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying our nation has no corruption. I'm not saying that. In fact, the reality is, as we stand here in the 21st century, corruption in our nation that has blossomed in recent decades, corruption already there, that has blossomed, that has come out of the woodwork, that has come out in bright colors without any shame, 
Corruption has led us in this country to the forsaking of many of the good principles that our nation was founded upon, whether our founding fathers were actual Christians or no. You see what I'm saying? And that has led to terrible, terrible things in our nation at this point in time. I mean, some of the things, brethren, that have developed in, in the last calendar year and even few months have been appalling to think about in our country and in our world. Well, when you think about that, you might say something like this. You might object or at least question this whole idea of praying for the government in terms of part of the way that we want to see a spiritual awakening, an outpouring of God's spirit. You might say something like this. Well, here in our country, our system of government is so vast and complex, it's not like just change the man at the top and everything is going to change. You, you might say, well, it would take a revival just to transform our government in any way. Well, let me, let me answer something there. First of all, in, in um, 1 Kings chapter 18, there's a count of a man named Obadiah. He was a servant of a king named Ahab. A ranking, he was a ranking government official. And Ahab was one of the most wicked kings in the history of the nation of Israel. So he was at the top. And this man Obadiah, we're told in 1 Kings 18, used his place of influence to protect, I mean to spare the lives of 100 prophets of the Lord, the Bible tells us. Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, was killing all the prophets of the Lord. And this man, in his place of influence, was used to protect a hundred of them. And another answer I'll give you is this. If you pray, according to 1 Timothy 2, for people who are in positions of leadership in our country, God could answer your prayers for good without converting any of them. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 2 when it says there, pray for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, reverence, does not presume that those leaders will be converted. But it might, according to verse 4, open up the door for other people to come to the knowledge of the truth. Think of Frederick of Saxony. Now, there are certainly, though I drew these connections and parallels about praying for leaders and praying for the outpouring of God's Spirit. And remember, it's not a matter of either or, obviously. There are limitations to what can be accomplished even if God answers our prayers for human governors. They might change the laws to make things nicer and better for Christians, to open doors for missionaries, etc. All that could happen. And it's possible nobody would ever be saved as a result. Could happen. I don't think it's likely. 
We still, we need the outpouring of the Spirit of God. We need to emphasize that when we pray for an awakening or a revival, we need the sovereign hand of God to move in a mighty way to save sinners, not just that we would have laws that are kinder to Christians. At the same time, I think we could all see the good in praying for the end of Islamic regimes in the world. I think that would be a, 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 first, a, a first Timothy chapter 2 prayer. In fact, I will confess this publicly. I'll acknowledge this. And I, I know this is very politically incorrect. If you're a Christian here, you, you understand it perfectly. But my, my acknowledgement is that since 9-11, so for the, about the last 22 years, I, I, I've prayed it more 20 years ago than I've prayed recently, but I still do it. I have prayed many times that God would so work in this world that Islam would eventually become something that if you want to find out something about it, you have to read it in a history book. That's what I pray uh, you could put that prayer in 1 Timothy 2. I'm praying for better governors in many parts of this world. But like I say, if those prayers were answered, it doesn't mean it would lead to the conversion of whole nations or even any nation. It doesn't mean that. It might. It might be part of what God uses the important thing, again, is praying for the outpouring of God's Spirit. I have some other headings here. I'm just going to try to summarize what I'm going to say and, and jump to my conclusion. Just one, one. Um, so, so, so here's one of my conclusions before my conclusion to my sermon. Let's look at the prayers that God tells us to pray. And I'm thinking of these prayers for our governing authorities. Let's look at them in perspective. I do look at that kind of prayer as subsidiary. I think it's important, but it's instrumental. Those government authorities have a supportive role for whatever good happens in the world, but it's a genuine role. And so we should not despise those kinds of prayers. We should not ignore them. We should not neglect them. We should look at it this way. God has ordained government for a good purpose, according to Romans 13, God says that we should pray for those governing authorities, so we should do it. And by the way, God has historically used good governing authorities for good in the world, even as ways to advance spiritual good. Think any of the good kings of Israel. Think of the elector of Saxony. Think of, can't remember who else I mentioned but just think in those terms. Don't ever let yourself get confused to think that revival of religion, though, is a politically powered thing. It is not. Even when political actions 
benefit gospel labors in some way, they never truly power any kingdom advancement. One of the reasons I make that point is sometimes when I read things that professing Christians have written here in the 21st century, and I'm sure it's happened throughout the history of the world, but I read things that professing Christians have written about politics, parties in politics, specific individuals in politics. I wonder sometimes, do they really think that that is the greatest need that we have in our society? That that particular political platform is adopted or that political, a particular political party is promoted, or that that particular political person gets in office. I, it really makes me wonder sometimes what people think. And that's why I say that. So to summarize, our present world, our present social, moral situation cries for prayer for revival brethren more on that next time but it also cries for prayer for our political leaders so now in conclusion let me say this i have a confession to make over the last 30 years i believe it's a fair statement for me to say i have read and listened to more political news and comment than I have needed to do to make myself an informed and responsible citizen in this country. I think there, there, in my youth, it was way in the other direction. Even in my early Christian days, I ignored those things. And I was enlightened. I think in the last 30 years, I think I, I've, I've listened to more than I needed to, even in my role as a pastor where I need to know stuff. Maybe you have too. So in recent years, I have cut back. There's my confession. Now I'm going to issue a challenge as I close. And the challenge is this for you sitting here today. Consider whether it might be good for you to do the same. I'm not saying I know it would be. I'm, I'm going to be like my predecessor. Could it be that it would be good for you? I only ask the question. Could it be? For my part, from a Christian perspective, in other words, speaking as a Christian, I would encourage you to try that if you think you might be like me. From a pastoral perspective... I would encourage you to try that as a man who's been a pastor for 30 years plus. From the perspective of my being one of your pastors, I would encourage you to try that. As a preacher of the gospel, an appointed minister of Jesus Christ, I believe it would be pleasing to him if you are in my boat and you did that. I am not saying 
return to your former ignorance, if you were like me, regarding politics and government. I like it when Christians are informed. But I am saying this, be more kingdom-minded. And I don't mean the kingdom of the United States of America or of Western nations. That is not what I mean. I mean kingdom-minded, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm saying be a more useful Christian. You know enough, if you are in my category like I described, you know enough to make wise decisions in the voting booth. Your knowledge, your personal accumulated political knowledge, so if you're, if you're in that category I'm talking about, so when I say your personal knowledge, I'm going to say it like one of my pastors, you! I'm talking to you. Your personal accumulated political knowledge, this is important, listen, is not going to change our world. It is not going to change our country. But your praying might just play a role in that someday. It might. So my challenge is this. Not entirely, but when it gets to a point, you think through it. Shut off your radio. Shut off your phone or whatever device you like to use to get your political information and pray. Again, let me give you my own testimony. What I've been doing lately is this. I listen to something or I read something till I get to the point, okay, this is all I really need to know about this. I don't need to know all the gory details about this to the point that I get so incensed this has never happened, but that I have to pull over on the street while I'm driving or something like that. No, I listen to it to the point that I say, that's terrible. And then I shut off my radio and I start praying. I am so thankful to God I've been doing that. I'm not boasting, brother. I'm just saying, think about it. I'm just saying, redeem Time that perhaps could be considered wasted time in your life. You might say, well, I don't know if I could do that. I mean, I spend two or three hours a day reading that stuff. I don't know if I could give all that time to prayer. Maybe if you're, you're, you have more time in your life, you might spend more time doing that. If you can listen to stuff and work, you might spend more time doing that. That's what I'm saying. There are better things you could be doing as a Christian. Pray, like I said. Alternatively, read your Bible. 
rather than engage your coworker or neighbor in political discussion, maybe have an evangelistic discussion. Brethren, we should pray for our civil authorities. And I think you should do like some of our pastors lead us in prayer on Sunday mornings. Pray for all three branches of government in our country, the executive and the legislative and the judicial. Pray for all three branches. I think that's what Paul's saying. Pray for all men. What category are you especially thinking of, Paul? Kings and all who are in authority. Pray for our civil authorities. When you pray for them, believe that God hears and answers prayer. Don't say, things are just so messed up, it's never going to happen. Don't think that way as a Christian. Believe God hears and answers. Believe it will do good if you pray in a scriptural way. Now I know, so you might be tempted to say, well, I don't know if I want to pray that, that we'll lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence because as I read the history of the church, I believe the well-known saying that it's a well-known saying for a good reason. And it's this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so you think, well, I think we really just need to pray that God will bring us persecution. Then maybe we'll have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now that is not terrible thinking. It's looking at the facts of history and logically concluding that's the way I should pray. But it's a bad conclusion for just one reason. Paul doesn't say to pray that way. God doesn't say to pray that way, Old Testament or New. He says, pray for those in authority so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So, I believe these saints are much better people than I am, but I've read about how sometimes people in persecuted nations pray for the West. They pray for us. They're thankful for your prayers for them. And they say they pray for us. And you know what they pray? That God will send persecution and poverty and want to our country because their experience has been that it has so cast them on their faces before God and given them the sense of utter dependence upon him that it's been a good thing for them. It was good for me to be afflicted. But again, I would just say, their prayers are contrary to the scripture. God bless their hearts for loving us the way they do. And we should love them. Our duty is the revealed will of God. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. And then just this final consideration. Another thing you might want to spend time doing if you're looking around and the only thing you have is just the article of your favorite political pundit for the day. Well, get a publication like Voice of the Martyrs, which I don't think costs a dime to have sent to your house. and Pick that up on a daily basis and let that fuel your prayers for kings and all who are in authority. Do as the apostle said in Hebrews 13 verse 3. Remember the prisoners. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. In other words, you're in a condition yet not gone to glory in which it could happen to you someday. And brethren, if we read 
If we read what's going on around us, it could happen sooner rather than later. Right here in River City. Could happen. But if you do that, remind yourself of them and kind of cut back a little bit on keeping up with everything that is going on in Washington, D.C. or Brussels or whatever. Another good that could come out of that is your prison, prisoner brethren throughout the world will appreciate it. Well, may God help us all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is good to have your word. It is good, it can even be thrilling, to hear your word proclaimed. But we have this great need that we be not hearers only, but doers of the word. Father, help us to pray. Forgive us for our carelessness, our being so easily distracted from our main things. Help us to do your will. And we ask, Father, that you would have mercy on our nation, have mercy on the, all the nations of the world, have mercy on the nations where the go to which the gospel is closed at present, have mercy on the Christians in those nations, especially those who are imprisoned. Come and work in a mighty way. Help the kings and the governors and the prime ministers and the presidents of the nations of this world to do better, O oh Lord, to be wiser. Save many of them, O oh God. Save them all. But we especially ask that you would pour out your spirit in a mighty way and that the gospel would be preached in our generation in a way that we have never seen it. And that even if we don't see in our lifetimes great works like the Reformation or the Great Awakening or what happened under the preaching of the apostles in Jerusalem or Ephesus or any other part of this world, that we would hear about it and see the results of it when we are in glory. Father, help us to pray, whether we see any visible tokens of your answers or not, because we know it's right, and we know it's good, and we know it is pleasing in your sight. And we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.